The first reading is from Revelation, chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The second reading is from Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument who I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up 
and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The observant among you will have noticed that we have now moved from John's Gospel uh, into the life of the early church. If you've been following us in our Sundays since September, you may remember that our lectionary that we follow here at the moment at Bloomsbury had us deep in the world of the Hebrew Bible and the story of God's revelation to the Jews back before Christmas. Then at Christmas, we explored uh, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. We've then explored the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And now for the next few weeks, we're moving into a time looking at uh, the story of God's revelation through the early church. So if that helps you locate where we are within our Christian year uh, in our readings, then I, I hope that is kind of interesting to you. But if you cast your mind back perhaps just a couple of weeks for a moment, uh, it was Easter Sunday. And it's not often that these days, at least, Easter sermons get the attention of the Prime Minister. Certainly none of mine have, at least not yet. But when the Archbishop of Canterbury chose a couple of weeks ago to use his Easter sermon to criticise the government's new policy of deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda, and uh, said that this policy was, as he put it, opposite of the nature of God, he certainly drew an angry response from number 10, whose current incumbent would, it seems, prefer the church to stick to theology and not politics. Well, others have since got drawn into this debate with the ever excellent and shortly to be retired Richard, Reverend Richard Coles commenting, People who question the Archbishop of Canterbury's right to criticise government policy need to acquaint themselves with the most basic rudiments of Christianity. Christianity always insists, or should insist, that we uphold the dignity of every person. And I don't think this policy is one that fully respects the dignity of people who are seeking asylum in this country. Well, well said, Reverend Richard Coles, and I do hope the retirement doesn't silence his voice at a national level. But this tension between the church and state is nothing new. Ever since Henry II's murder of Thomas Becket in Canterbury Cathedral, nearly a thousand years ago, our country has struggled to negotiate the uneasy legacy of Christendom, of the church-state alliance that came into being under the Emperor Constantine in about 350 of the Common Era. Those of you with uh, long enough memories may remember that in 1988, a certain grocer's daughter, as she often liked to be called, was invited to address the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And Margaret Thatcher began her speech with the deceptively simple assertion that Christianity, she said, is about spiritual redemption not social reform. The great conservative female prime minister of the 1980s, Christianity is about spiritual redemption, not social reform. Get back in your church boxes, Christians. Don't interfere in the affairs of the state which do not concern you.
And this, this quote, I think, takes us right to the heart of the question I'd like us to consider this morning, which is this. What difference, if any, does our Christian faith make to the lives we lead, Monday to Saturday, and to the society in which we lead them? Or to put it another way, what in heaven's name is the point of being a Christian if it doesn't make any earthly difference? You see, it's all very well becoming a Christian and indeed encouraging others to follow the way of Jesus. But the question of why seems quite important to me. Over the years, I've occasionally found myself getting drawn into discussions with other Christians about the topic of how and why we hold the faith that we do. These are good questions. They are worthy of serious consideration. But there is one question that has come up again and again in such conversations that I found rather less helpful. And this is the question not of why you're a Christian or even what does being a Christian mean to you, but the old chestnut of when did you become a Christian? And the difficulty for me in answer to the when question is that I simply can't remember a time when I wasn't. There are, I know, many people who have had dramatic and sudden conversions to the Christian faith. There are those who have encountered the risen Christ in a decisive way as they have made their way along their own Damascus road. There are those who will speak of the scales suddenly falling from their eyes as they unexpectedly find themselves seeing the world differently and seeing where Christ is, where God is for them. But that's not been my story, nor my experience, because I'm one of those who's grown up going to church. I like to say that I started attending church before I was born, because my mum went. I've always known the love of God in the same way that, you know, I've always known the love of my parents. It isn't something I've ever needed to be converted to because it's always been a part of me. And one of the things that has occasionally been said to me in certain circles is that because I don't have that date and time to put on the point when I became a Christian, well, maybe I'm not one after all. Simon, brother, I'm worried. Are you truly saved? The church where I grew up in Seven Oaks in Kent was a great church. I have very fond memories of the 20 years I attended there. In more recent years, my mother spent nearly a decade as the church secretary and she still attends there. The minister, when I was in my teens, sometimes used to take the opportunity, usually at a baptismal service, to ask people if they wanted to commit their lives to Jesus for the first time. He had a technique. He would ask everybody to close their eyes, look down, and then he'd invite those who wanted to register their commitment to raise their eyes, raise their head and look at him. And he would murmur, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In gentle acknowledgement of each life given over to Jesus. And the teenage cynic in me used to wonder whether there really were that many people in the Vine Baptist Church Seven Oaks on a Sunday evening communion service, lifting their heads and looking at him and committing their lives for the first time. I mean, 
who'd know if there weren't? The rest of us good Christians had all got our eyes shut. Maybe I thought his thank yous were kind of priming the pump, creating an environment in which someone might actually respond. But the problem I had was the only way of knowing would have been to have lifted my own head and have a look. And you can see my problem. I had absolutely no intention of doing so because he might have caught my eye and murmured thank you at me. The thing was, one or two people in the youth group had started to suggest to me that perhaps it was time that I gave my life to the Lord. And the assumption that I wasn't already a follower of Jesus, just because I hadn't responded in a particular way, made me, I'm afraid, all the more determined to resist any attempt to inveigle me into some act of public commitment. And another thing that made it all the more frustrating was that my favorite hymn at the time was the great Charles Wesley classic, and can it be? I promise we're going to get to sing it later. It's our closing hymn. I loved that wonderful and challenging verse. Maybe you know it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. And again, the problem I had here was very simple. I was just a kid, and let's face it, a good Christian kid at that. The idea of my spirit having lain imprisoned for years in sin and nature's night was somewhat nonsensical to me at that stage. And whilst I longed to be able to sing that verse with gusto, it simply didn't match my experience. I had not seen the blinding light diffused from the divine eye, nor felt the dramatic loosening of chains that preceded the freeing of the heart and the going forth and following. And then one day, as we were singing that hymn, because we sang it quite a bit back then in the 80s, something obvious occurred to me. Paul, the one who experienced the great Damascus Road conversion, the one who quite literally had the scales fall from his eyes, was already a follower of God and a faithful one at that, long before his Damascus Road experience. It's too easy for us to think of Paul converting in the sense of changing religion. But that doesn't work in that period. We're talking 20 years, maybe, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. At that point, Christianity didn't even exist as a separate entity to Judaism. It was, at best, a messianic sect within Judaism. And the stories in the book of Acts that we're going to come on to, stories of Peter and Paul and Silas imprisoned and then miraculously released after finding their dungeons flooded with divine light, with the doors flung open or the chains that bound them removed. These were stories of people who were imprisoned because they were Christians, they are not stories of people becoming Christians. I think Wesley kind of twists the stories a little bit to make his great conversion hymn work. 
And as this occurred to me, um, you know, I'm pleased to think that as a teenager I was, I was catching a glimpse of what as a later biblical scholar I have come to realise is the new perspective on Paul. The idea that we can only read Paul from the lens of Judaism. But as I grasped this idea that Paul was already a faithful follower of God, the whole language of conversion, the assumption that one needed a point of commitment in order to be a proper Christian, found itself added to my growing list of things that I needed to have a bit of a think about. And where I've come to on this after several decades of pondering is a sense that conversion is not really about marking that point at which one first encounters God in Jesus. Although it might well include that for at least some of us. Rather, conversion is about responding to God's invitation to see things in a new way and to live accordingly. And one helpful way of thinking about this is to realise that conversion, thought about in this way, as, as an invitation to respond to God's revelation, is not a one-off event. It is rather a process that goes on in stages through our lives, a process which ideally ought to last us a lifetime. So if conversion is thought of as a process rather than an event, then the task of conversion ceases to be focused around that once-for-all moment of decision, with the evangelistic preacher proudly carving one more notch on their church pulpit rail. And conversion ceases to be something that we can put behind us, secure in the knowledge that we did it at the age of 14 and don't need to do it again. And it ceases to be something that some of us need to worry about because we've never had our dramatic moment in the bright lights diffused from the divine eye. Rather, it becomes a process and a calling that engages each of us personally and each of us corporately, not once, nor twice, but daily. My friends, have you been converted to Christ today and yesterday? And will you be again converted to Christ tomorrow? I am reminded of the mantra of the 12-step programs that you take it one day at a time. I think for many of us, Christianity is about being in recovery. It is a daily process. So I have to say that the verse of the great hymn, and can it be, that I struggled with as a teenager, makes a lot more sense to me now that I'm pushing 50. Still not a one-off moment of release now firmly in my past, but certainly as an ongoing experience of forgiveness and deliverance and freedom. As I continue to discover in my life more of the gracious love of God made known through Christ by the Spirit.
So if conversion is about responding to God's invitation, to see things in a new way and then live accordingly, then conversion is something that we cannot ignore because it is a fundamental to our calling as followers of Jesus. By this understanding, it is entirely legitimate for us to ask of ourselves whether we have experienced conversion, but this is not some attempt to define who's in and who's out, who has joined the club and who has yet to sign on the dotted line. It is rather a question we ask of ourselves and one another, out of concern for one another, that our walk with God has neither stagnated nor stalled. Something I've found helpful when thinking about conversion is the idea that Christians experience conversion in different ways at different times in their Christian journey. My wife Liz has a saying which she shared here at Bloomsbury before, that everyone needs to be saved from something. It's just what we need saving from isn't necessarily the same for each person. And if I can take that idea a bit further, I think everybody also needs converting to something. It's just that what we need converting to isn't necessarily the same for each person. This idea is sometimes spoken of as the three conversions. And this isn't to imply that these three, which I will come on to in a minute, must happen in a set order or that they happen only once in each person's life. Rather, this idea of the three conversions, I think speaks to us of the ongoing and daily task of conversion to the way of Christ. So the first conversion in our list of three is the conversion to Christ. For many of us, this will be where we have started our road of discipleship. Because for many of us, it was the love of God for us, made known to us in Christ and through Christ's body, which is the church, that first drew us into faith. But knowing that Christ loved us and loves us and died for us is not the be-all and end-all of our conversion to Christ. Because it asks then a response from us. If we are converted to Christ, not once, but daily, then conversion entails a daily decision to put Christ at the center of our lives. A commitment to live this day in the light of God's love for us in Christ. If conversion is about responding to God's invitation to see things in a new way and then live accordingly, then conversion to Christ means that our faith in Christ should be so much more than, for example, our weekly offering of Sunday worship. It includes that, but this is not the sum total of our conversion to Christ. It means rather that Christ will be found at the centre of our daily decision-making processes. It means that Christ will be found at the centre of our daily relationships. It means that the risen Christ is encountered in the minutiae of our lives, shining the light of God's truth into the darkest areas of our lives, releasing us from all that seeks to bind us and imprison our souls. 
And I'm not going to play the game that my minister played when I was a teenager, but I am going to ask the question to those who are gathered here and to those of you who are gathering and joining us online. If you are reaching that point in your journey with God where you feel you want to mark your conversion to Christ, and if particularly if you feel that the time is right to mark that through the waters of baptism following the example and command of Jesus, then talk to me. It is always a delight to lead people through baptism. And if that is where you have got to in your journey, talk to me, talk to Dawn. We would be delighted to facilitate that for you. But it's not just about conversion to Christ. We come to the second conversion in our list of three, and that is a conversion to the church of Christ. We sometimes use Paul's language of the church as the body of Christ, don't we? In fact, you know, this is, this is the metaphor that will be in play for us later as we share communion together. Breaking bread and sharing wine in remembrance of Christ's body which is broken for us and which now nourishes us and shapes us and calls us and forms us as the body of Christ in this place and this time. A conversion to Christ also implies a conversion to his body which is the church and it is a matter of not inconsiderable concern to me that the fastest growing Christian group in the UK are those who describe themselves as post-church the pandemic has accelerated church decline dramatically in every denomination across the country there are countless numbers of people who maintain an active faith in Christ, who read their Bibles, who access teaching materials online, who have daily and vibrant prayer lives, but who have walked away from the body of Christ, which is the church. And I say this not to make anyone feel guilty, nor to be depressing, but those of us who have been here a while can probably look around us at the pews and picture faces who used to sit there or there or maybe there. And we know that these faces are no longer here, not because they no longer know the love of God made known in Christ, nor because they've moved elsewhere. There are good reasons why people leave a church. But for many of them, they've just stopped coming and once you stop it's very easy to stay stopped the numerical strength of the church in this country still lies with the baby boomer post-war generation my generation the so-called gen Xers, and those who've come behind the millennial generation are walking away from churches across this country and leaving a huge gap. Carson and Paul Nyquist in their book, The Post-Church Christian, post Christian, say that the burden of each generation is to follow Jesus as best as they can. And they go on, for baby boomers, that meant revamping the church and introducing fresh ways to meet, reach people and impact the community. 
And so, they say, for millennials, it will mean continuing to rethink faith and church in today's world. However, they sound a note of caution. They say the disconnect occurs when older leadership is ready to hand on the baton to the next generation and find that no one is there anymore. I am hugely encouraged by our leadership team here at Bloomsbury. I am delighted that over the 10 years I have been here, our leadership, our deacons have spanned the generations. It has been a great encouragement. I also note that there are those who have found being a younger generation in leadership a burden that they have struggled to bear and they've done it for a while and then they've stepped down and there are good reasons for stepping out of church leadership as there are good reasons for leaving church. But we need to grapple with taking it seriously what it is to hand on the baton to the next generation in ways that empower them and allow them to rise to the challenge of leading this church and the church more broadly. I'm, not, I'm talking about Bloomsbury, but you could write this across every institutional type of church in this country. How do we hand on the baton to the next generation is a crucial question. If it is true that Christians need one another, and that a Christian going it alone is a Christian who is cutting themselves off from the body of Christ, then those who have experienced the conversion to Christ need also to receive the invitation to have a conversion to the Church of Christ. We need to discover what it means to express our commitments to one another in real terms as we become a kingdom people, living the values of the inbreaking kingdom of God in our lives together. And it's worth saying that conversion to the church is not the same thing as conversion to a particular institution. And if conversion is about responding to God's invitation to see things in a new way and then live accordingly, then conversion to the church of Christ may mean moving beyond institutional allegiances, however powerful they may be, to discover in new ways, the vitality and humanity of genuine relationships forged in Christ. There is much good that is going on in new forms of church, smaller incarnational communities, networks of relationships. And again, I firmly believe that part of our future here at Bloomsbury will be fostering those smaller networks of relationship and community as part of what it means to be part of this church. There are those who are firmly part of Bloomsbury, who we ain't gonna see sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. Now, I want people to be here on a Sunday morning, do not get me wrong, but that is not gonna be the way it is for everyone. And there are people who are part of our church who we can value and minister to and receive from who will do it through wider relationship networks. And that's fine too. And so we come to the third in our trilogy of conversions. Conversion to Christ. Conversion to the Church of Christ. And finally, conversion to the world for which Christ died. Ancient Greek philosophy drew heavily on the teachings of Plato 
who articulated a way of looking at the world which became known as dualism. And in Platonic dualism, there is a fundamental distinction between the physical world that humans inhabit and the kind of non-physical world that lies beyond human experience. This split, if you like, between the physical and the spiritual. And the key to understanding Platonic dualism is the notion that the non-physical world is the true world, the perfect world. Whilst the fallen, flawed, imperfect world that we inhabit is merely a shadow of a reality currently unaccessible to us in its full perfection. Well, early Christianity, as it moved from the Jewish world to the Greco-Roman world, inherited something of this dualistic worldview, and in many ways, it is with us still today. For many Christians, what really matters is the spiritual world. Well, the messy, messed up world that we actually have to live in is just something to be endured as we pass through on our way to somewhere better. This can then lead to a view of the physical world as something that matters maybe less than the spiritual world. And so we end up with Christians caring more about the spiritual standing or personal morality of their politicians or leaders, for example, than they do about the social policies that those politicians enact. We split our spiritual concerns from our practical real world concerns. So we find Christians who don't really care about climate change because they believe that they're going to go to heaven and be with Jesus who's going to make them a new heaven and a new earth anyway. So what's the problem? That is not my view. I want to make that very clear. And so we come back to the root of my concern with the quotation with which we began, the assertion made by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to the Scottish Assembly that Christianity is about spiritual redemption, not social reform. And my problem with this is that it sounds a lot like an assertion of platonic dualism couched in Christian terms. And so we come back to the problem I have with Boris Johnson's response to the Archbishop of Canterbury, that he ought to keep his nose out of politics and focus on theology, starts to sound a lot like an assertion of platonic dualism. And we need to resist this. Christianity originated in the Jewish religion, which was not a dualistic faith. If you go back and delve into your Hebrew Bible, as we did last autumn and will do again this autumn, you will find that the Jewish perspective on God in relation to the physical world is one of unity, and unity within us as well. If we divorce Christianity from the physical world, then we end up divorcing our faith from issues such as social reform. If we go along with the view that archbishops and Baptist preachers should stick to theology and keep away from politics, then we run the risk of robbing the gospel of Christ of its power to transform the world. And I'll say it again, what in heaven's name is the point of being a Christian if it doesn't make any earthly difference? 
This is the crux of the third conversion, the conversion to the world for which Christ died. It's all very well being converted to Christ, and it's all very well being converted to the church of Christ. But without a conversion to the world for which Christ died, none of this goes anywhere. The call to care for God's creation and those who live in it is not an optional extra for those who like that kind of thing. It's a fundamental part of the gospel of Christ as good news for all people, for all nations. And if conversion is about responding to God's invitation to see things in a new way and then live accordingly, then conversion to the world for which Christ died is an invitation for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we learn to see the world differently as the scales fall from our eyes. Paul's experience on the Damascus Road hinged around what happened to his eyes. Did you notice it? To start with, he can see normally, and then he sees a bright light, and then he is blinded, and then after a few days, the scales fall from his eyes, and then he can see again. The conversion of Paul is the story of his experience of coming to see the world differently. And then the rest of the book of Acts is the story of how he lived accordingly. And the world has never been the same since. And we see the same thing happening in our short reading from the book of Revelation, which describes every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing glory and praise to the one in heaven. Here we catch a glimpse of a world transformed of peoples of the world set free from the darkness and chains which diminish and imprison them and keep them from being fully human. Here we catch a glimpse of the created order set free from the oppression of exploitation by humans as humans discover a better way of living at one with the worlds that they have been given to steward and tend. Here we catch a glimpse of the conversion of the world, not in the sense of conversion by force, but in the sense of conversion by love. As those whose lives are already aligned with the values of the inbreaking kingdom of God, live out their salvation in such a way that others then experience the reality of God's love for the whole world expressed in Christ Jesus. As Citizens UK, our partners in social justice here at Bloomsbury put it, this is the gap between the world as it should be and the world as it is. This is a challenge for us to play our part in the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And our calling as the followers of Christ is to join with others in standing in that gap, in interceding for the world, bringing the all-embracing love of Christ to those who need it most, without exception and without preference. The bottom line is that I just don't think we can separate spiritual redemption and social reform. If we are daily converted to Christ, we discover that we need one another and so we are converted to the church of Christ. But then in order for our conversion to have meaning, we are converted to the world for which Christ died. 
So I'll ask again, what earthly difference does it all make? Well, I think it's simple. It makes all the difference in the world. Let us pray. Loving and caring God, as we gather within our building, as well as online, and experience the joy that stems from praying and worshipping you together, we thank you for the blessings of companionship and fellowship, without which we would be much poorer and much lonelier. We know that much of our strength comes from the example set by others, and much of our fortitude would be lost if we had to bear our burdens alone. As a community, we are far more than a court of individuals pursuing their own separate goals. But we are also far more than a society committed to promoting its own self-interest. Being a church, we are the body of Christ. May we fulfill this role with gratitude, generosity, and cheerfulness. Loving and caring God, as we witnessed war ravaging Ukraine and many other forgotten conflicts plaguing regions of our world, we pray for the victims, those who have their lives destroyed or shaken by events beyond their control, their families torn apart, their dreams and memories shattered by sheer brutality and savage violence. May we always remember that people become refugees not by choice, but by necessity. And that living on a planet where the collective use of force is not subject to law, and where international authorities have stopped working properly means that nobody is really safe. Loving and caring God, as all those conflicts drag on, with no clear prospect of a diplomatic settlement within reach, we pray for our leaders and for everyone confronted with tough decisions requiring strong judgment, cold blood, but also compassion, prudence, and awareness of the value of every single human life. For life is a gift we receive, not something we own, and therefore can dispose of at our own discretion. Loving and caring God, as we recognize there are flaws in our social, economic, legal, and political systems, 
We pray for those who realize the importance of transforming and transcending the ways we inhabit them. And by doing so, undergo a conversion that leaves nothing unchanged. May we be able to follow the same path and discover a deeper meaning in our faith. Loving and caring God, we finally pray for Bloomsbury. As a congregation, may we find the courage, energy, and determination to achieve and maintain real unity. Unity among equals, unity in freedom, unity cemented through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the quest for the beloved community. Amen. So go into God's world with love and hope and joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer be with us all today and forevermore. Amen.